What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping you? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? you, you, you. This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Normally at this time we will take your phone calls and social media and all that. However, today it's a mailbag program. We've got a, a mailbag full of emails that have come in over the past few weeks. We'd love to uh, answer as many questions as we can from folks uh, who have emailed us the address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. Are you ready for a dip into the mailbag? Uh, Let's dip. Here we go. This is from John, who says, Dr. Anders, if tradition and the magisterium developed by humans are to be relied upon in our faith in combination with the Holy Scriptures, aren't we relying on fallible humans that are influenced by their own personal perspectives and axes to grind? Why do we rely and trust in Holy Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium as truth if each is, have you have stated, developed, written, and established by humans that have their own limitations and fallibilities. How is this any better than any other religious approach to truth and salvation? Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate the question. So the Catholic position, of course, is that uh, Scripture and tradition, although not in the same way, uh, are, are, are products of human reflection and, 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 and human uh, uh, agency, but that the process is superintended, overseen, as you, as it were, by the Holy Spirit to guarantee the desired outcome. In the case of Holy Scripture, that would be an inerrant authoritative word where everything that is said is exactly what God wants said. Um, the, uh, the condition with, with tradition is a little bit different. We, we don't say, for example, about the teaching of the magisterium that it's inspired, and so it doesn't have the, that same level of... Um, uh, the nature of the Holy Spirit's activity, I should say, in the Church's teaching is different than it is in Scripture. And yet, when it comes to the infallible dogmas of the Church, we can still know for certainty that, that they're without error. So that's mm. that's obviously a faith claim, okay. right? I mean, yeah. you could say, well, okay, Andrew, so can you prove that Holy Spirit, Holy Scripture is inspired and that the Church's teaching is infallible? Well, I can't prove it uh, empirically. You know, I can't, uh, I can't offer you some sort of Holy Spirit Geiger counter that you could pass <laughs> over the text that would beep, you know, when you d- discern the presence of supernatural agency. Mm. Um, and so the way Catholics have traditionally answered that question is to point to something called the motives of credibility, right? And <clears throat> there are a lot of different ways to construe the motives of credibility, but reasons to believe that it is reasonable to treat these sources as divine, right? And right off the bat, this is not the only one, but right off the bat, I would like to say that the the problem ultimately that the religious enterprise seeks to solve um, is the problem of sin. It's the problem of uh, the distorted life, the the life that is beset by self-deception and self-destruction that brings harm to ourselves and to our neighbors and and alienates us from our highest purposes, Mm -hmm. uh, especially union with God. It's the dilemma that Paul uh, lays out in Romans chapter 7 when he says, look, I recognize there's a a rational moral principle that I'd like to live by, and yet I find myself failing to live by it. Mm, And uh, and how am I going to get out of this dilemma? And he says, thanks be to God, 
you know, through Jesus Christ, my Lord, who's basically rescued me from this problem. And so the things like the lives of the saints, and these are individuals who seem to have conquered the passions and the flesh and to have lived overcoming lives of heroic charity through their reliance on the Catholic faith, are a powerful witness. Maybe not a, a, a determinate witness, maybe mm. not a witness so compelling that no one can resist their influence, but nevertheless a powerful witness to the truth of the scriptures and the tradition that brought them to that kind of holiness. You know, other considerations would be uh, the fulfillment of prophecy, the uh, the history of redemption from, from the Hebrew people uh, to the Gentile world and the way the message of the gospel and of Christ and of the Hebrew scriptures has transformed not just the lives of the saints, but cultures and societies. Mm. All those things are, again, they're not, they're not the kind of reasons that make it impossible to disbelieve. They are the kind of reasons, however, that make it rational to believe. Ultimately, the act of faith is a human act. It's a free choice to submit myself to this tradition as authoritative, as having been delivered by mm. God, because the, uh, the rewards promised for doing so uh, are, are worth the risk. Okay. Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one from Gerald in the District of Columbia. Dr. Anders, in the English version of the Divine Mercy Chaplet, we say, Heavenly Father, we offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in atonement for our sins and those of the whole world. But we do not have Jesus Christ physically present as our offering. Is there an example in the Old Testament where there is a sacrifice to God without there being a physical gift? Thanks, Gerald. Okay, thanks. So I'm going to quibble about the word physical. Okay. We may not have Jesus physically, but we do have him substantially. Mm. Now, if I wanted to speak imprecisely, for rhetorical effect, it would have been better if I just said, oh, yeah, we do have him physically, <laughs> doggone it, right? Um, but that would be to be imprecise. Mm, the, the, yeah. the word the church uses is not physical presence, but substantial presence or real presence. Okay. We do actually have the body and blood of Christ to offer to God the Father in reparation for the sins of the world. We have that in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Mm -hmm. That is precisely what the Mass is. It is the offering of the body and blood of Christ, the true body and true blood, the real body, the real blood, present substantially uh, in the Mass uh, to God in reparation for sin. So when the Divine Mercy Chaplet says, Eternal Father, I offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity, it is specifically referring. This means I offer you these things in the Mass, in the Mass. So that's exactly what happens. Okay. So the, the rest of your question is really kind of off base. It's sort of a non sequitur. And you say, well, we mm. don't have the body of Christ, so how can we offer it? Yeah, but we do have the body of Christ, sure. and thus we offer it. Okay, and there you go. Gerald, thanks so much uh, for your question today. Uh, we're doing a special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, here is the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we'll get to one from Cassie, also John in Cullman, Alabama. Uh, Debbie has a question. We've also got one from Michael. A lot of great, great emails here with some very interesting questions coming up on this next segment of Call to Communion, a special mailbag edition here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
It's called a communion here on EWTN. Uh, if you would like to send us an email, we'd love to get it because today we are doing a special mailbag edition of our program wherein we answer a whole bunch of uh, great emails that have come in over the past couple of weeks. Interesting one, and also a nice thing that we do on days like today is we can get to some of those longer emails that we just can't tackle during our live broadcast. Here's one now from Cassie. Cassie says, Dear Dr. Anders, I am a cradle Catholic. I was taught by the very strict nuns in the 50s. I find it difficult to say, quote, I love Jesus. I've had a lot of self-incrimination for it. I took it to confession once. The very nice priest assured me it's not my fault. Well, I have tried to read and listen to discussions on love of God, but I find that they're too lofty and academic. Then, two weeks ago, a caller on your show asked my question about love of God. Your answer was exactly what I wish I had heard much sooner in my life. You said that love of God is love of beauty and truth. Simple. Thank you so very, very much for your answer, which I take as grace. Could you revisit that question and please talk about beauty and truth just a little bit more? Thank you so much, Cassie. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the question, Cassie. So this is something the Catholic faith really, really helped me with enormously. I grew up in another religious tradition. I grew up in the Protestant tradition, evangelical tradition. And, of course, I heard all these admonitions to love God. And I often heard praises of religious people, and and the terminology used in the Protestant world is to say that so-and-so is a strong Christian. And usually there's a certain accent placed on it. Oh, you know, Bob's a strong Christian. (laughs) And the the, the strangeness of that phraseology never struck me till I was in grad school, and I had a Jewish professor that said, what, does he lift? (laughs) Like, he can can bench 200 pounds? That's right. Is that a strong Christian? (laughs) And, uh, And... whether or not this is what my my uh, elders and betters intended to convey, the impression that I walked away with was that a strong Christian and someone who really loved God was, first of all, um, deeply engaged in religious behaviors, right? They would, they would have a, a quiet time every day and read their Bible. They uh-huh. were faithful to their devotions. They never missed church. Uh, but also that they had a certain kind of emotional quality to their religious practice where they were deeply enthusiastic about it, and they derived a great deal of personal satisfaction from their religious behaviors, um, in, almost to the extent of infatuation, and it was that infatuation that seemingly drove other concerns from their mind, and if they lived a morally overcoming life, it was you know because of that almost romantic relationship they had with Jesus. And so for many of them, relationship to Christ would have meant a kind of, a, you know, almost like a, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend kind of thing, where oh. you have this sort of deeply intimate, uh, conversational, very first person, second person uh, kind of friendship with Christ, uh, exemplified in the bumper sticker of, you know, Jesus is my co-pilot or something. You've yeah. seen those. And oh, yeah. I, I remember reading a description, a sociologist's description of a particular Protestant congregation in Chicago, I think a vineyard church, where where parishioners were instructed to set a place at the table for Jesus, literally like an empty placemat, you know, uh-huh. and to and to uh, and to pour themselves a cup of tea or coffee and to and to sit down and and to engage their prayer life as if they were, you know, having a conversation with Jesus over coffee. And so there's obviously a a deep exercise of imagination that's required there, right? 
to sort of picture Jesus sitting there and imagine him looking at you. If you've ever heard the hymn, uh, the, I think it's called the, Come to the Garden Alone by Austin Miles, famous 19th century Protestant hymn. That's, uh-huh. It's something like, I come to the garden alone where the dew is still on the roses and the, how does it go? Um, uh, you know, and the secrets that he, there, the Son of God discloses and he walks with me and he talks with oh, me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he calls me and tells me I'm his own. Yes, you know? yes. And, uh, and, and really cultivating that kind of sense <clears throat> of, uh, oh, Jesus. Right. <laughs> And that that's what love of God means. Okay. Right? All right. And that, that's what I thought as a child, that in order to, quote unquote, love God, that I had to do that, that I had to do that, that to be that kind mm-hmm. of person, of that kind of spirituality. Uh-huh. And and what I have we've since learned, you know, after 53 years of Christian life and 20 years of Catholic life, is that it's possible to do all of that and to be a real jerk, right? You can have all of that kind of imaginative deeply personally satisfying, uh, sincerely felt, um, just overwhelming, passionate relationship with Jesus, your best friend, uh-huh. and yet obey none of the commandments and and be very hard to your neighbor. And, you know, St. Paul admonishes us in a couple places not to exasperate your children. Well, let me tell you something. I've known people like that that exasperated the living daylights out of their children, <laughs> particularly with their very showy and vaunted piety, Right. When, when you get around a person like that sometimes, and uh, in response to almost any struggle or any trial or any difficulty, they feel like they have always got to have the ready-made, uh, uh, pious platitude to offer you. Well, you know, Jesus will take care of it and throw all your concerns on him. Meanwhile, you get the sense that they don't have any concern for you at all, right? I know. And so it's obvious that that's not what love of God means. It's clearly not what love of God means. And the, I think the best way to grasp this is to begin with the teaching and the person of Jesus himself, right? When, when Christ calls people to follow him in the gospel, it is extremely evident that he does not mean that. He, he concretizes that by saying, this is what you're supposed to do. You need to go eat with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. You need to take off your coat and give it to somebody that doesn't have one. Um, you need to uh, uh, pay all of your debts and 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 recompense those that you've cheated, like like Zacchaeus. Yes, did, yes. Right? Um, uh, you need to not be a religious hypocrite and think that because you've tithed mint, dill, and cumin that you are made righteous with God. You have to focus on love and justice and mercy. Over and over again, Jesus makes these kinds of admonitions. Nowhere does he ever suggest that we have to develop a certain kind of affective, romantic piety or imagine ourselves to be in some sort of inner dialogue with him that takes place over a cup of coffee. That's nothing to do with the teaching of Jesus. What happens in the history of of Catholicism is that very ethical, uh, transcendent, and and transformative view of uh, religious practice comes into conversation with classical philosophy. And so most of the church fathers who are are steeped in the teaching and the life of Jesus understand Christ to be about the very same project, albeit at a more elevated level, that someone like Socrates or Plato was about, Mm. right? Which is the perfection of the human person. The, uh, the elevation of the human person, uh, you know, to some sort of transcendent moral norm. 
again, albeit with the help of grace, rather than just relying upon reason alone, as the philosophers did. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't hesitate to speak of Jesus Christ as a philosopher. And when I first encountered that, I thought, well, that's strange, because he, he doesn't talk like a philosophy professor. You know, he has a very <laughs> different mode. But when you understand philosophy as a way of life aimed at the amelioration of the human person, at the elevation of the, the life of the human person to some transcendent goal, you begin to see how, okay, from that point of view, I can see how the kind of project that ancient philosophers were engaged in, which was often theoretical and, and, and captivated by ideas like the true, the good, and the beautiful— uh, in a different idiom, in a Hebrew idiom, is the project that Christ is about, only we think that he did it perfectly. He is the perfect embodiment of that philosophical picture of wisdom. And that, that image is stated manifest for us in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, where John tells us that the light that gives light to every man, that is all the philosophers as well, uh -huh. becomes incarnate in the person of Jesus. And so someone like Justin Martyr, second century father of the church, says explicitly that the very same divine word, the divine logos, that inspired the minds of Democritus or Plato or Aristotle is the divine logos that becomes incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews says the same thing. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in various ways, including philosophy, but in these last days he's spoken to us in the person mm. of his son, right? And so, understood in that broad sense, right, the elevation of the human person to a transcendent goal uh, means life in accord with reason, uh -huh. right? And reason is about uh, grasping the universal, grasping uh, the universal principles that underlie this life that we live, uh -huh. uh, principally things like truth and goodness and beauty. And the Catholic understanding of God uh, is God is not just one being among many, even a you know, great big uh, being who could lift more than 200 pounds. God is the very active being. He is, he is the, the, the ultimate source, the ground of everything true, good, and beautiful in reality. St. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. And so quite literally, uh, you are loving God. Um, the, the, the closer you come to the depth of reality, the more you open yourself up to the truth, the goodness, and beauty of the world, you are in a very real sense— uh, coming into deeper and deeper union with God. This is exactly what Bonaventure says in his book, The Mind's Journey into God, which I recommend mm -hmm. that you read. He says the entire world is a ladder ascending to God. And the one thing that blinds us to the existence of the ladder is our own concupiscence, which is healed by the grace of Christ. And so there's no contradiction between the wisdom of the church, the wisdom of Christ, the ministry of Christ, and the transcendent moral ideal ideals set before us in the life of reason or in the life of nature and reality, except that Jesus heals the mind, heals the eye, heals the heart, and enables us to do what we could never do by mere philosophy or mere nature alone. So um, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said that grace, or the Scripture writes in capital letters what nature wrote with cribbed hand, mm, yeah. uh, which is a beautiful image. Sure and, is. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's what I have to say. You know, Cassie, we really appreciate your email. I hope you uh, are edified there by that little extra amp amplification. And also thank you for your kind words about the show. It's a special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Michael sent us this one. Dear Dr. Anders, my understanding is that for an act to be a mortal sin, the individual needs to have full knowledge that the act is a grave offense to God and freely choose to engage in the action. So my question is, 
we increasingly live in a society in which people are not taught belief in God or Christian morality. In many cases, people are taught a, quote, morality that is exactly the opposite to Christian morality. For example, the idea that fornication, cohabitation, abortion are all part of, quote, living your best life. Are people who are raised without belief in God and knowledge of Christian morals not committing and living in mortal sin? How does this fit with the idea of mankind's obligation to cultivate a well-formed conscience? I think many secular folks would argue that they have cultivated a well-formed conscience according to their set of, quote, morals. How might I try to think through this? Thanks, Michael. Yeah, thanks. So there is a psychologist who is an atheist and a relativist. He does not believe there are moral absolutes. He does not believe there is a God. Uh, his name is Martin Seligman, and he is the former president of the American Psychological Association, and he's a big name in the field. And he's particularly associated with the study of optimism and the, the, the value of optimism to human flourishing, uh-huh. and more broadly with the study of what's called positive psychology. Positive psychology is you know, traditional psychology looked at all the pathologies, you know, your neuroticisms and your psychoses and how to alleviate human suffering. Positive psychology starts at the other end. It says, let's look at people who are flourishing, people whose lives are going well, and see what we can learn about human flourishing so that if you're just kind of an average Joe, you maybe you're not depressed, but we can sort of raise you up to the next level of, of, of human well-being through the use of positive psychology. And he has a book on the topic called Authentic Happiness, which, which I would recommend. It's, it's not a bad book. <clears throat> and, and I'm pointing out for this reason. What Seligman says in the preface to his book is, look, <clears throat> he says, I'm an atheist. I'm a relativist. I, I can't tell you what to believe. I can't tell you what to do. You do what you want to do. It's your life. You make up your own choices. I'm going to tell you what to do if you want to be happy. Hey, if you want to be miserable, that's, that's great, buddy. That's easy. <laughs> you know, go right ahead. Go right ahead. But if you want to be happy, here, do this. Do this. And I'm not going to give you, you know, Seligman's entire formula, but I will tell you that an awful lot of it uh, is fulfilled by living uh, a robust Catholic life. And, you know, Seligman's going to point out, look, nobody ever got ahead in life or or, or felt better about themselves or, or lived a sort of psychologically flourishing existence by embracing the principle of cowardice. Yeah. Right. And And a lot of what he advises boils down to something like, uh, the traditional practice of the virtues. And the Catholic position all along has been that the, the the roots of Catholic morality are in the nature of the human person. It's what we call natural law, that you can discern the good for a human being by a rational consideration of their nature. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the history of culture bears this out. So if you look at the world religions that have dominated the planet since, say, about the 8th century B.C., and I make an exception, they're different from what came before in the agricultural revolution, but the Axial Age religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Confucianism, the Hellenistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, uh, they they have differences, but they have an awful lot of overlap when it comes to foundational question, questions of morality. Mm-hmm. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book about this called The Abolition of Man that I strongly recommend to you. And, um, and uh, why? I mean... W- and I think what that points to is that these things are not accidental. They're not they're not mere conventions of culture. The fact that they occur in so many different cultures is evidence that we really do have a common human nature. And the same kind of things tend to human flourishing, whether you live in, in medieval India or whether you live in, in 21st century France. Okay. 
the the one place that Christianity adds something to that story is that Seligman says, look, here's what you need to do to be happy, but I can't tell you whether you should or you shouldn't. The Hebrew tradition imports into the language of morality the concept of thou shalt or thou shalt not, or thus saith the Lord. Uh-huh. And for a Catholic, God says, I command you to be happy. But in this very robust sense of living according to your rational good, not merely your hedonistic uh, self-interest or, sure. or blinded by the the fashions and prejudices of the day. And so you have a moral obligation to free yourself from ideological prejudice and the kind of bigotry that narrows the mind to those sorts of truths that you've already mentioned. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We're doing the mailbag program today as we answer a bunch of great questions that have come in the past few weeks here to a call to communion. Interesting question here that we got from a Bob in Austin, Texas. Tom and Dr. Anders, hope that you and yours are doing well. Dr. Anders has often referred to St. Thomas Aquinas's illustrative but speculative supposition, wherein the apostles celebrating a Mass on Holy Saturday would have transubstantiated in the bread and wine only Christ's body, blood, and divinity, but not his soul, since his soul would have been in, quote, hell, i.e. the limbus of the fathers. Uh, in the, If the incarnational God-man Jesus is one person with two natures, why would Jesus's divine nature not accompany his soul to visit the fathers? And if his divinity did accompany him there, at, that is, by being present in both places, why would the human soul of the two-natured God-man not also be in both places, perhaps via the sometimes saintly process of bilocation? Did Aquinas elaborate on this particular aspect of the question? Thanks for taking my query, Bob in Austin. Yes, thank you. So, of course, the divinity was hypostatically united to the humanity. Uh-huh. But that's the doctrine of the Incarnation. And the definition of death— what we mean by death is the separation of soul from body. So in Thomas's hypothesis, uh, although he doesn't elaborate this, but we can infer what he would have intended, the, the divinity would have remained hypostatically united to the soul because that's the human nature, right, in the state of death. And so you would have had the, the God-man uh, in uh, having descended to the realm of the dead, in the manner in which people descend to the dead, namely in the soul. And the divinity would also be hypostatically united to the body, um, but in the manner in which a body exists post-mortem, namely without its soul. Okay. So, so yes, the divinity would also have been uh, united to the soul in, in hell, and the divinity was united hypostatically to the body in the tomb. Okay. Appreciate that. And thank you so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Wendy uh, regarding the uh, brown scapular. Why doesn't everyone wear the brown scapular as a Catholic if Mary asked us to? Why is it not as popular as the rosary or the miraculous medal? Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, go wear the brown scapular. By all means, do so. Put it on, grow in your piety and holiness, uh, increase your hope, go to heaven when you die. I mean, I'm a fan. I approve. Great. Not like my opinion matters, but I just want to get that out there at the beginning. <laughs> okay. 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 However, if someone calls me up and says, uh, Andrews, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know if I really hold with that revelation. If that, you know, I'm not sure that that's uh, real central to the faith, and I'm not even sure it happened. Do I have to wear the brown scapular? I'd say no. Nope. You sure don't. And why do I draw that conclusion? 
Well, the church tells us that there is no private revelation, no matter how edifying, that is to be held as part of the public teaching of the church, right? That, that when it comes to private revelation, it is literally up to the conscience of the believer whether or not they incorporate that into their, into their life, into their spirituality. Um, I can think of a lot of reasons, and I don't know that it would be all that edifying for me to enumerate them, but I can think of all kinds of reasons why someone would refrain from that particular devotion. Um, here's a good one. Maybe you're not a Latin Catholic. Mm. Maybe you're a Byzantine Catholic, and you have an entirely different spiritual patrimony relating to different saints, different Marian apparitions, different patterns of devotion, uh, and, and you wish to live out your Catholic life within that particular patrimony, as is most appropriate, because that's your community, that's your family, that's your cultural history. You're still Catholic, you're still in union with the Pope, you still have all the graces that are available to all the sacraments, but you've got a different theological patrimony and a different spiritual tradition. Have at it, you know? So this, this, this freedom of the Catholic with respect to spirituality came home to me in a very humorous way one time. I've talked many times on this show about a dear, dear friend and mentor of mine named Lambert Greenan. Uh, Greenan was born in 1917 in Newry, Ireland, and by the age of seven, he knew he wanted to be a Dominican priest of the Irish province. He even told his parents, I'm going to say my first Mass on that altar, St. Catherine's Dominican Church in Newry. I'm going to say my first Mass on that altar wearing those vestments. Wow. And, and he did it, man. And he, he entered the <laughs> Dominican Order when he was 16, and he died at 101. I figure he's probably one of the longest-serving Dominicans in the history of the Order. Yeah. Right? You know? and, uh, and there was, there was not—let um, me put it this way. When it came to other religious orders, the man did not have a Jesuit bone in his body. <laughs> Right or a Franciscan bone either, okay. for that matter. He right. he was a Dominican from the top of his bald head, you know, to the bottom of his aged toenails. Right, Dominican through and through. If you know anything about Jesuit spirituality, they are all about the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola. All right. Now, if you know anything about Dominicans and Jesuits, you know they have a long history of conflict. They've been at each other's throats in a in a familial way, like sibling rivalry, you know, for as long as the Jesuits have been around, uh-huh. okay? Which the Dominicans are quick to tell you is not as long as the Dominicans have been <laughs> around, okay? And um, and I, I once asked Father Lambert, we were talking about spirituality and spiritual practice and his life in the Dominican order, and I said to him, I said, Father Lambert, have you ever read the spiritual exercises of Ignatius? Now, let me tell you something. I read the spiritual exercises of Ignatius long before I was even Catholic, I read them because they're part of the spiritual patrimony of the Western world. And if you want to be educated in the history of spirituality, I don't care if you're an atheist. Uh, I mean, you ought to know the spiritual exercises. There's a, there's a French philosopher named Pierre Hadot who has made the question of spiritual exercise central to his philosophical project. Mm. And he looks you know, at spiritual exercises in antiquity among the Stoics and the Platonists and all the rest of it. Um, but he borrows the phrase spiritual exercise from the works of Ignatius. So I mean, it's just, Ignatius is just really central to the whole Western tradition. So an educated person you would expect in Christianity would have read them. I said to Father Lambert, who was very educated, I said, Lambert, did you ever read the spiritual exercises of Ignatius? Like, he looked at me like I had asked him if he would consider selling his mother. You know? <laughs> and he was like, no. <laughs> no comment, just no. Flat no. I said, well, what did you guys do, you Dominican types, when you went on retreat? Again, he looked at me like I had asked him if he had ever brushed his teeth, and he said, 
well, we read St. Thomas's Summa, of course. You know, like, <laughs> what do I need that for? You know, and uh, the point is, within Catholicism, there are there are a, a, a thousand spiritualities. Uh, they speak to different temperaments, to different times, to different cultures. None of them is absolutely normative. All of them are possible. And so the thing to do as a Catholic is explore the tradition in all its richness. It's a magnificent spiritual buffet. And you find the dish that fits your palate, the, mm-hmm. and that is invariably the one that edifies you the most, the one that will help you the most to see the world through Jesus' eyes, to become a better human being, more just, more temperate, uh, uh, stronger in your commitments, more uh, more prudent, more faithful, more loving, more hopeful. What, whatever spirituality does that for you is the right one. When it comes to the interpretation of Scripture, it's the same thing. St. Augustine, in the 4th century, wrote a book called On Christian Doctrine, and he talks about, you know, what, what happens when Catholics disagree on the meaning of a biblical passage. And Augustine says, look, disagree all you like. Any interpretation that leads you to charity is a good one. Any interpretation that leads you away from charity is a bad one. That's the ultimate rule of Catholic life, whether it comes to biblical interpretation, theological traditions, spiritual traditions. And, uh, and, and so that, you know, if the scapular is the one that does it for you, go wear the scapular. But if you're like Father Lambert and you're like, Carmelites, not my thing. I'm a Dominican. <laughs> you go do that thing. There you go. Wendy, thanks so much uh, for your email. Appreciate that. David, you're a, a bit of an animal lover, am I right? Uh, you know, uh, I'd be up a creek if I, if I weren't. I don't know if, you've, if you're watching YouTube right now. You can probably see I have my, my sweatshirt on that has a picture of my dog on it. This is Love it. Harry, my golden retriever. So, Love yeah. it. Well, we've got two animal-related questions okay. for you. This one is from Dan, who says, Animals are not to be mistreated but they are not united with God in baptism with a soul. So where does the church teach that animals have a soul? Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. So, so you're not going to find a, uh, a dogma, say, at the Fourth Lateran Council that said, you know, we believe in the Trinity and the Incarnation and the divine authority of the church and the sacraments. And Oh, the, oh by the way, animals have a soul. Right? A dog dogma. Right, a dog dogma, you know. Um, and, and the reason why is because the, the, what gets defined as dogmas are things that have been taught by divine revelation as central to to, to Christian faith and identity. Mm-hmm. And the question of whether or not animals have souls, like you could you could get that question wrong and and still go to heaven. You know, you could get that question wrong and still be united to the church and her faith without having denied any dogma. Okay. So where you're going to find that teaching in Catholic tradition is in the Catholic philosophical tradition. So it's part of the Catholic intellectual tradition, rather than explicitly the dogmatic tradition. Now, um, in an extended way, you could say the Church has more or less baptized uh, Aristotelian philosophy as interpreted by St. Thomas. Uh, and it's been pretty—I cl- mean, the Church has made pretty clear that that's the, that's the philosophical patrimony that um, is— uh, Really, at least it's one philosophical patrimony that's that's perfectly compatible with the Catholic faith and is very appropriate. And at one time, around the time of Leo the Thirteenth, it was pretty much the de facto philosophical position of uh, of the Latin Church. And in that tradition, uh, the ensoulment of animals is is a is absolutely it's not ecclesiastical dogma, but you could call it an Aristotelian dogma. It's a doctrine of that philosophical system that has more or less 
uh, become the standard way of accounting for the nature of soul in the Catholic philosophical tradition. Dan, thanks so much for your email. Here's the second animal-related question. This is from Ed in Cornwall, Ontario. Ed says, why does God allow animals to suffer? Oh, I don't know. I have absolutely no idea. And, uh, and, I, and, you know, a lot of me wishes he didn't. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in a broad sense, the Church says that God allows evil because he intends to bring out of it a greater good. I confess that I often do not see the greater good he intends to bring. And that the renewal of the physical universe, including the animal universe, is envisioned in Christian redemption. And St. Paul says that all of creation, not just the human species, groans waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, meaning the resurrection of the dead, that, yeah. that, the, that the animal kingdom will also be renewed. I mean, Isaiah, probably in a purely poetic way, states that the lion will lie down with the lamb. It's going to go pretty hard on the lion unless he wants to become <laughs> a vegan, you know, but, yeah. but uh, be good for the lamb, I suppose. But nevertheless, the image is still there of a renewal of the animal world. As to, as to how God brings a particular good out of that, I could not tell you. I do not know. Uh, and I wrestle with that. But that some good comes of it is is a de fide, is of the faith. Ed, thank you so much uh, for your question. Called to communion here on EWTN. Earlier in the hour, we mentioned the rosary. Well, you can join us for the rosary here on EWTN Radio every morning, 5.30 a.m. Eastern with Mother Angelica and at 9.30 p.m. Eastern with Father Benedict Groeschel. Check it out, the rosary right here on EWTN Radio. Here's a great question from Jim and Sally in South Australia in Adelaide, to be specific. Dear Dr. Andrews, my wife and I were married in 1988 before we were Catholics. At the time, we thought we were both baptized Christians. We both converted to Catholicism in 2002 and understood that our marriage was sacramental because we were both baptized. However, recently, my wife had doubts about the validity of her so-called baptism. She's not sure she was properly baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, she had a conditional baptism performed just to make sure. But now, I'm wondering if our marriage of 35 years may not be sacramental after all. If her baptism wasn't valid, then back in 1988, our marriage was between a baptized non-Catholic, me, and possibly a non-baptized believer, my wife. Are my doubts warranted? If so, can we do something to make sure our marriage is sacramental? By the way, we watch your show regularly. We're very grateful for it. Thank you, Jim and Sally in Adelaide, South Australia. Yes, thank you. So the practice of the Church in this situation, when you have a natural, a valid natural marriage, uh-huh. and then, uh, then one or both of the parties is baptized, the practice of the Church is not to perform another wedding. Right, it presumes the validity of the first sacrament that was a nat. Well, I should first sacrament, first marriage. It presumes the validity of the first marriage, which was which was natural. Uh-huh. And the and the common opinion of theologians is that in virtue of the sacrament of baptism, um, your natural marriage becomes automatically a sacramental marriage. That it's be- and you think about the logic of this, right? Why is it that Catholic marriages, that Christian marriages, are sacramental? and natural marriages are not. What's the difference between the life of the Christian, including his sort of bodily and sexual life, and the life of a non-Christian? 
Well, it precisely is the distinction of baptism. That is the, that is the defining difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. A Christian is someone who has been baptized, and in virtue of their baptized, baptism has become a member of Christ. And that's not a mere metaphor. I mean, St. Paul says that our very flesh, our very bodies are members of Christ's body. It's in virtue of that that we look forward to the resurrection of the dead. As Christ raised, as God raised Christ's physical body from the dead, so our bodies will be joined to our head and the whole body will rise together, right? Very much a physical kind of union there. So since, since marriage is a union that's formed by the determination to engage in some form of form of sexual cooperation for the purposes of raising a family, bodies are very much involved in the vow of marriage. And we've already determined that through baptism, your body is now a member of Christ. So you have two bodies in physical union that are themselves each members of Christ's body. It should become obvious that that's different from the bodies of two unbaptized people in, in whose marital relation Christ is not automatically implicated in that way. So the sacramentality is a, is a function of the, the status of your body as a member of Christ joined to another person as a member of Christ. Once you're baptized, that's, that sort of takes place automatically with you. Okay. Jim and Sally, thanks for your email. Thanks for your kind words about the show. And thanks for listening to us in Adelaide, South Australia. Here's something a little on the tough side from Charles in Columbia, Tennessee. Why could Satan not be forgiven? Would he even ask? Is he not a created being of God, now being cast into a fleshly role like man? Uh, well, nothing fleshly about it. No. All right, he has no flesh. Satan's a pure spirit. Um, so the teaching of the Church about this is that when, when the fallen angels disobeyed, that they were confirmed in their state of disobedience. Mm. And so their wills uh, are not really free. They're, 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 they might be free to choose between, like, you know, uh, do we want to try the rack or the thumbscrews? You know, I mean, <laughs> they can choose between evils, right. but they can't choose the good as such. And, uh, and thus the possibility of repentance is not open to them. Okay. Appreciate that. And uh, Charles, thanks so much for your question. Here's one now from Linda. Dr. Anders, I'm quite curious. Can you help me figure out what it means by the term marriage reconvalidation? My parents were married in an Episcopal ceremony in 1942, but in order for me to be baptized Catholic, they had to take Catholics, uh, they had to take classes in Catholic catechism. This enabled them to have their marriage recognized as valid in the eyes of God. I'd like to hear what you have to say on this, and that is from Donna. Okay, thanks, Donna. So I'm not exactly sure what your parents' situation was, but I'll talk to you about, so I can't speak to them specifically, uh-huh. but I can talk to you about Catholic teaching. Okay. Catholic Church recognizes two kinds of marriage, natural marriage and sacramental marriage. The natural marriage is a good thing, Right, it's a it's a it's a divine institution. Uh, it is the marriage between two unbaptized people. Adam and Eve had a natural marriage. Okay. Two Hindus have a natural marriage. Two Buddhists have a natural marriage. Two atheists can have a natural marriage. Nothing wrong with natural marriage. It's a good. God made it. It's a good. It 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 proceeds from the nature of the human person as sexually dimorphic. Right, that men and women are are different sexes. Uh, through their uh, sexual cooperation, they bring forth children into the world that need care and love and nurture, and the people that are responsible for bringing men to the world, namely their parents, are the ones that have the moral responsibility to do so, and natural marriage is just a recognition by cultures throughout the world that those people have a particular vested interest in the kids that they've generated, and the kids have an interest in their parents, and that's what we call marriage and family. Right Now, sacrament is when God takes some natural thing, could be water, could be oil, could be bread, could be wine, 
could be breath, right? Take some natural thing and and stipulates it as a symbol of a supernatural reality and then attaches the supernatural reality to the symbol. So in the case of baptism, God takes water, says, let's let water stand for the washing and rebirth of the soul. And oh, by the way, when you experience the symbol, I will in fact wash and and revivify your soul. So it's both a symbol and it affects the reality that is symbolized. That's what a sacrament is in Catholic theology. Now, he can do that with water. He can do that with bread and wine. He can also do it with another natural thing called marriage. So God says, let's take this natural institution called marriage. Let's make that a symbol. Let's stipulate that that is a symbol for the kind of love that Jesus had for the church, the self-sacrificial love of Christ for the church. And oh, by the way, when you manifest the symbol, I will also invest it with a spiritual power such that the participants in the symbol will now have the supernatural ability to love one another in the manner in which Christ loved the church. Mm. And the Catholic teaching is that is the reality for all baptized people who marry. Okay. That it is, a, that is elevated to the level of a sacrament. Now, any two baptized people can potentially have a sacramental marriage if they have a valid marriage. So two Presbyterians that marry, sacramental. Two Episcopalians that marry, sacramental. There's one final hurdle, however, and that is if you are a Catholic person specifically. If you are a Catholic person, the Church stipulates that your wedding has to be celebrated in a Catholic church in front of a Catholic priest or deacon. That's just a stipulation, and there are reasons for it that I won't go into now. Uh, And if you don't do that, a wedding that would otherwise have been sacramental is not valid— and only a valid marriage can be sacramental. So therefore, you're not really married, and you don't have a sacramental marriage either. Okay. Um, when we talk about a marriage that is convalidated, we're talking about someone that has that entered into a union that they thought was marriage, but it lacked some essential element. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, for a Catholic, that would be they got married in front of a justice of the peace. Okay. All right. So they intended marriage. But they didn't get married in front of a priest or deacon of the Catholic Church, and therefore their marriage is not valid. But they thought they were getting married. When they find out they weren't, they go to the church, and the church says, no problem, you just say your vows in front of a, of a priest or deacon, and, mm-hmm. and voila, we'll give you a valid marriage, which automatically becomes a valid sacrament. And we call that process convalidation. We could just call it getting married in the Catholic Church, but we use that terminology to acknowledge that there are people who have lived something that is analogous to the state of marriage, right? The, the justice of the peace thing, mm-hmm. without actually f- really fulfilling all the requirements for a true marriage. Gotcha. And uh, Donna, thanks so much for your email. Here's one from John in Cullman, Alabama, not far from us. Uh, he says, hello, love your show. I've often heard Dr. Anders say that God, quote, walked in the garden with Adam, but he has no feet. I was wondering how this compares with God talking at the transfiguration, saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. How was God heard without vocal cords? Right. Don't know the answer to the question, because this text doesn't tell us, but you do recognize that when God spoke at the baptism, not everybody present then all, and also when 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 in Gospel of John when Christ says you know glorify your name uh-huh, and a voice uh-huh. comes and says I have glorified it now glorify it again, the text tells us explicitly that some people heard a divine voice others thought it had thundered and others didn't hear anything, mm. 
which seems to suggest that it was something other than the mere vibration of airwaves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Appreciate that. Here's one from Betty Ray. I'm looking for a reliable Catholic translation and commentary of the Didache. Can you recommend something? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I found one just the other day, and yeah? I, we mentioned it on the show. I actually gave it out on the show the other day. And... Um, and um, it's not right in front of my face. So if you it, you give me a minute, I'll uh, give me another question, Tom, and I'll try to find it. I can do that. Here's one from uh, L.E. in Danville, Illinois. At the time of Jesus, when a husband divorced his wife, did the husband retain custody of her children? Before the angel's message to St. Joseph in the dream, I'm guessing St. Joseph wanted to protect Mary from any charge of adultery, and that Joseph would quietly divorce Mary, allowing her to become the wife of the child's father. Also, is there any reason to think that when they initially arranged their marriage, that maybe Mary and Joseph wished to remain virgins within their marriage as a sacrifice to God? Yeah, thanks. So in terms of of what Jewish marriage law um, would would have to say about the custody of children, this is not an area of expertise for me, Uh um, but I am uh, assuming that the husband would have had custody because most ancient cultures were, were deeply patriarchal in the way they thought about family law. Okay. Um, did Mary and Joseph intend virginity when they were betrothed? Absolutely, yes. That's the teaching of the church. And, okay. and there's some indirect evidence in the Gospel of Luke when Mary is confronted with the, the promise of the, of the uh, incarnation at the Annunciation, and she knows she's betrothed, but she says, how's this going to come come about? Like, well, she knows where babies come from, so yeah. Yeah. her 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 befuddlement is is kind of unintelligible unless she intended to vow virginity. Okay. Um, so I, uh, I was trying to find a Catholic translation of the Didache. Uh, check Catholic University uh, Press, right? That'd be okay. one place I would go. All right. Um, and, uh, but honestly, you, you don't have to get a Catholic translation. All you need is a scholarly translation of the Didache because like, the principles of translation aren't different for Catholics than they are for anybody else. Very good. Betty, uh, Betty Ray, thank you so much for your question. Also, L.E. in Danville, Illinois fast-moving hour, I must say. Uh, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN. Looking forward to our next visit as soon as possible on EWTN Radio. On behalf of our fantastic crew here, including our engineer and uh, producer, Charles Berry, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Have a great day. We'll see you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless. God bless.